First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. I'm interested in what we believe. And in particular, I'm interested in those things that we believe but don't really believe. The things we pretend to believe. And why we do that. For example, we personify inanimate objects, and that's a pretend belief. Do you talk to your car? Come on, start. Or please, please make it to the gas station. St. Francis of Assisi talked to Brother Sun and Sister Moon, to Brother Wind and Sister Water, Brother Fire and Sister Earth. He was liable to talk to any creature he encountered, calling it a sibling. If Francis had had a car, I imagine he would have talked to it too. Simon and Garfunkel, feeling groovy, sing, Hello, lamppost, what you knowin'? We don't really believe that our cars or the sun or lampposts hear us or understand or in any way care about whatever we may be saying. A lot of us know our cars don't hear or care, and yet we talk to our cars anyway. I do. Some of us even name our cars. Laura Kim's in my car is named Merope because She's a Subaru, and Subaru is the Japanese name for the constellation that we and the Greeks call the Pleiades. And the Pleiades in Greek mythology are seven sisters, daughters of Pleione and the Titan Atlas. Merope is one of those sisters. (laughs) And I picked that name because Merope is the only sister who married a mortal. And the mortal she married was Sisyphus, which would make Laura Kim and me collectively Sisyphus, which, yeah, I kind of resonate with that some days more than others. <laughs> so there's this little story I have, a story to participate in, which enriches my experience of the particular automobile to which I own the key. It also connects me to a little bit of family history. You see, my dad used to speak fondly of a Nash Rambler they had back around the time I was born and was too little to remember. There's a black and white photo in the family album of my young parents standing beside that car. Its name, they told me, was Terpsichore, also a figure from Greek mythology, the muse of dance. It makes me smile to look at that old photo And it makes me laugh to think of that hulking Nash Rambler as the muse of dance. And today, I have Merope, and I do talk to her. When I enter the garage to drive to church, I say, good morning, Merope. I might add, how are you today? And she responds, as things do, by silently shining Upon returning home, I get out of the car, I walk around, pat her on the hood, and say, thank you, Merope, good car. Many people talk to their pets this way, good dog, which might seem less crazy than saying good car to a metal mechanism. When we do talk to non-living things, it's more often in frustration. One evening as a boy, I was on the periphery of the kitchen as my mother, a physics professor, struggled to open a jar. Come on, she said to the jar, what's the matter with you? And as her white-knuckled hands strained to twist the lid, my father entered just in time to hear this. He turned to me and he said, Son, 
It takes a physicist to believe in the perversity of inanimate objects. There is an actual thing called resistentialism, the idea that objects deliberately resist human intentions. (laughs) Wikipedia says that resistentialism is a jocular theory to describe seemingly spiteful behavior manifested by inanimate objects, where objects cause problems like lost keys or a runaway bouncy ball are said to exhibit a high degree of malice toward humans. The theory posits a war being fought between humans and inanimate objects, and all the little annoyances that objects cause throughout the day are battles between the two. There are times when this is an attractive theory. We apparently like to project on objects an imagined hostility toward us. On the other hand, we like to project on our pets various positive feelings toward which we sympathize. The line between what we really believe and what we pretend we believe can get fuzzy. I don't really believe my car can hear me or understand me, yet I consciously decide to talk to her and pronoun her as if she could. Sometimes some of us talk to the universe in general as if it could hear us. And after all, isn't that what prayer is? Consciously deciding to talk to the universe in general as if it could hear and understand us? Prayer is good for us. It helps orient us to the way that we want to be oriented. It draws on the part of the brain that we use for relating to other people, that constructs an understanding of other people as person-like, as having agency, as having beliefs and desires. To address our car or reality as a whole, as person-like, puts us into a story that enriches the relationship and makes it more meaningful. If you have one of those smart speakers in your home, you can say, Alexa, what's the weather? Or Alexa, play NPR. And for those of you listening at home, if I have activated your Alexa, (laughs) my, my, my apologies. You can say mean things to your Alexa, and it won't have any effect at all on how she performs with your next request. Or you can be nice, and you can say, Alexa, thank you. And she will say, you're so very welcome. And that won't have any effect on how she performs on your next request either. But it has an effect on you. The practice of being nice to things around you is a practice, and it shapes you, whether the inanimate things care or not, just as prayer is a practice, and it shapes you, whether the universe as a whole hears or cares or not. Pretending that they are person-like helps reinforce habits of how you treat actual people. You don't really believe that Alexa or your car is a person, but it's good practice to pretend she is and be nice anyway. On the other hand, believing in the perversity of inanimate objects, as Dad gently suggested to Mom, maybe isn't a belief or even a pretend belief that you would want to have. Resistentialism is maybe not good practice because it trains you to see more perversity everywhere, including in your fellow humans. As the twig is bent, so grows the tree, and the tree of you is always growing. Certainly, it's good practice to treat your dog as person-like, as having beliefs and desires entitled to a certain degree of concern and respect. It may be the case that your dog's person-likeness is another pretend belief, that dogs don't really have the feelings we attribute them, but keep in mind 
you and I might also not really have the feelings we attribute to each other either. It's unclear how much of a distinction to draw between human and canine emotional lives. We might not even really have the feelings we attribute to ourselves. Psychology professor Lisa Feldman Barrett argues that emotions are mostly socially constructed. There are, she says, two biological continua that are real. There's the pleasant to unpleasant continuum, and there's the high arousal to low arousal continuum. For low arousal that's pleasant, think of blissful calm. For high arousal and pleasant, think of something really fun and exciting. For high arousal and unpleasant, think of something very scary and or anxious producing. And for low arousal and unpleasant, think of being bored or lethargic. As far as what's real biology in our emotional lives, that's it. That's all there is. Just pleasant to unpleasant continuum and the high arousal to low arousal continuum. Everything else emotional, joy, love, anger, fear, sadness, shame, ennui, schadenfreude, and on and on is socially constructed interpretation of our biology. There is no neurological state or condition of the brain that all and only angry people have. We have to learn how to read each other's feelings and read our own feelings, just as we learn to read marks on a page as words of our language. And in both cases, it's a process of constructing meaning. Indeed, if you don't know at least one certain word of French, you won't be able to detect ennui in yourself or others. And until you learn the German words schadenfreude and weltschmerz, you can't have those feelings. Because the feelings aren't a biological reality, they're a social construct constructed with our language. In her chapter, Is a Growling Dog Angry? Lisa Feldman Barrett says that the growling dog isn't angry in the sense of the dog itself constructing anger from its experience. Anger is an interpretation, and dogs don't interpret that way, she says. That is, to be angry requires speaking English or some language with a word that translates as angry. Since dogs don't speak such a language, then in that sense, the growling dog isn't angry. On the other hand, we humans do interpret ourselves and others with the concept anger, and it's reasonable that we should also interpret dogs that way, too. And in that sense, yes, the growling dog is angry. We include dogs in our social reality when it comes to some emotions, and we should. Reality, says Philip K. Dick, is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. Expanding on that a bit, we might say physical reality is that which doesn't go away even if everybody stops believing it. Social reality is that which doesn't go away if you alone and by yourself stop believing in it, but does go away if everybody stops believing in it. Anger, in dogs or in humans, isn't physically real. If no one believed in it, it wouldn't exist. Money, for that matter, isn't physically real either. There's coins or paper or, these days, electrons in bank computers, but none of that has value. None of it constitutes money unless humans believe it does.
If no one believed in money, it wouldn't exist. So on one level, anger and money are pretend beliefs. But anger and money are both socially very real. If you alone by yourself were somehow able to stop believing in anger or in money, they would not go away. So at another level, believing in them isn't merely a pretend belief. We do, though, like to pretend. I remember as a teenager spending a thrilling afternoon with friends poring over Beatles lyrics and album covers looking for clues that Paul was dead. According to the theory, Paul McCartney died in a car crash in November 1966 and was secretly replaced by a lookalike. Clue hunting proved infectious and became an international phenomenon. It was kind of exciting to see a clue. Oh, look, there's this picture from the Magical Mystery Tour album, and they're all in white tuxedos with roses on the lapel, and the other three have red roses, but Paul's rose is black. Ah! And doesn't the cover of the Abbey Road album with them walking across the street look like a funeral procession? It was fun how weird it was. And there's a basic rule for this rook sort of game that is better known as a rule for improvisational theater. Never argue against what another character makes up. Accept whatever they say and build on it. The rule-making makes improv comedy more fun, and it also makes conspiracy theory building more fun. (laughs) Without ever saying out loud or acknowledging the yes and rule, that's exactly the rule I was following that afternoon that I got all caught up in the Paul is Dead game. If someone were to say, see, Paul is barefoot in this picture, and that's a sign of mourning. I would never have been such a killjoy as to reply, yes, in Judaism, mourners take off their shoes when they're indoors. But one, Beatles aren't Jewish. Two, in this picture, they are outdoors. And three, anyway, wouldn't it be the other three Beatles who would be in mourning? (laughs) Caught up in the game, I couldn't even have imagined such a reply. Nevertheless, even in the midst of it, some part of me knew it was a game, just as people all caught up in a role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons still know it's a game. For some people, though, the fun of pretend belief starts to blur over into real belief. It stops being a game. And I imagine that's how the QAnon conspiracies work. It's fun to join in with others in cooking up wacky interpretations of clues. It's a way to connect with others, to be creative and collaborative together, following the rule of accept whatever the other players add and build on it further. In the case of the Paul is dead rumor, the whole thing mostly served to spur album sales, though it became a little annoying for Paul and the other Beatles. In the case of QAnon, it does more harm. Even with QAnon, some amount of the belief in its people, some amount of the belief in in it is people pretending to believe it rather than really believing it. As Steven Pinker writes in his book, Rationality, millions of people endorsed the rumor that Hillary Clinton ran a child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington. But virtually none took steps commensurate with such an atrocity, such as calling the police. The righteous response of one of them was to leave a one-star review on Google. It's hardly the response most of us would have if we literally thought children were being raped in the basement. Well, 
until that one person, Edgar Welch, took the belief seriously and burst into the pizzeria with his gun blazing. He apparently really thought he was rescuing children. The millions of others, Pinker concludes, must have believed the rumor in a very different sense of believe. Hugo Mercier also points out that impassioned believers in the vast nefarious conspiracies like the 9-11 truthers and the chemtrail theorists who hold that the water vapor contrails left by jetliners are chemicals dispensed in a secret government program to drug the population. They publish their manifestos. They hold their meetings in the open despite the belief in a brutally effective plot by an omnipotent regime to suppress brave truth-tellers like them. This is not a strategy that you see from dissidents in undeniably repressive regimes like North Korea or Saudi Arabia. Many of these people are very seriously pretending to believe the conspiracy, still, for all their seriousness, pretending. Baker says there's a zone of the physical objects around us and the people that we deal with face to face. There's a set of rules and norms that govern these interactions. The other zone is the world beyond immediate experience, the distant past, the unknowable future, faraway people and places, remote corridors of power, the microscopic, the cosmic, the counterfactual, the metaphysical. People may entertain notions about what happens in these zones, but they have no way of finding out, and anyway, it makes no discernible difference into their lives. Belief in these zones are narrative, which may be entertaining, like the future birthday of Captain Kirk, or inspiring or morally edifying, like the future birthday of Al-Amam al-Mahdi. Whether they are literally true or false is the wrong question. The function of these beliefs is to construct a social reality that binds the tribe or sect and gives it moral purpose. The conspiracy theory behind anti-Semitism has been growing and morphing and poisoning minds for centuries. It's hard to imagine that it was ever fun, but the way it evolves suggests the application of the yes and rule to bizarre interpretations of fabricated clues. Such conspiracy theorizing does function to construct a social reality that binds the tribe or sect and give it a moral purpose. Evil doesn't start out as evil. It starts as a very human, necessary function. We need to make sense of our world, to have a story to participate in that lends meaning to our lives. And sometimes the stories turn toxic. We need to have our stories, but what can be done about the toxic ones? Of course, the obvious, stand up for the truth. Be willing to violate the rules of improv and say no rather than accepting and building on the other person's craziness. Adhere to good standards of credibility. Don't leap to conclusions beyond what the evidence supports. Cite your sources and ask others to cite theirs. Be skeptical. Be ready to change your mind. We need a lot more observance of all those guidelines. And I have one other suggestion, not so obvious. Take an improv class. Encourage the teaching of improv in our schools. I suggest this because improv actors know they are acting, 
And we need to get better as a society at drawing the distinction between when we're really believing and when we're pretending to believe. We don't need to stop all pretend believing as if we could. We don't need to stop having money and constructing emotions. We don't need to stop playing board games with storylines or talking to our cars and our pets or brother son or to lampposts. Much of that is helpful or good for us and good practice. We just need to be able to step back sometimes and recognize that we are, in fact, playing make-believe here. Also, improv is hugely fun, and we could all use more fun. We need to have more fun with this weird thing that we're all saddled with and blessed with called being human. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>